Hey, everybody. We are doing a special series of interviews over the next couple of weeks on Infill. We're doing these in partnership with Up for Growth. Up for Growth is national. They are a membership organization. So actually, Yimby Action is a member of Up for Growth, along with a lot of other different kinds of organizations all who believe that we need much more housing across the entire United States. And they're carrying bills like the Build More Housing Near Transit Act and the Yes in My Backyard Act. Um, really great people. They are having a conference and we'll put the links to that conference in the show notes. Um, it's gonna be over three weeks in the fall. It starts on Monday, September 20th. Of course, it's all online, um, but tickets are free and there are going to be so many interesting speakers. Um, this series, we are going through and interviewing a lot of the people who are just really compelling stories, elected officials across the country, people who are doing different kinds of activism, people who are doing research on housing, all about the housing shortage, how it's affecting communities, and why people care so much about this issue. I think it's a really great series. I've really enjoyed having these conversations with people. I've met some really interesting and just fascinating people. I hope you enjoy these conversations. Um, and with that, on with the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Infill, where we talk housing politics and policy. Today, we are hearing highlights from people who are going to be speaking at the Up for Growth conference in a couple weeks. And don't worry, the link is in the show notes. Today, we're speaking with Christopher Leinberger, um, who is a longtime urbanist um, who got into it through housing development and through building really creative and interesting and inspirational spaces. Um, Christopher, tell us about kind of your background and, and why you care so much about urbanism in two sentences. Sure. Got involved with real estate through real estate consulting, through owning and running the country's largest real estate consulting firm, then got into real estate development with Robert Davis who was the founder of Seaside, the first new urbanist community. And then I had my academic phase of life along with Brookings as a senior fellow at Brookings. So it's sort of, I have a low, a low boredom threshold and can't stay at one, one position for very long. So I think one thing that's interesting about hearing it from the more builder's perspective, the builder's trying to figure out what do people want, right? I mean, that is the goal is to build spaces that people are going to want to buy from you, obviously. That, that has changed a lot over time. Um, and I think in some ways intentionally changed and in some ways unconsciously changed as we've sort of selected four different kinds of spaces. You know, you've, you've seen a lot. Tell me about your early days and kind of the growth that has happened. Sure. I, I started in real estate when the structural demand from the market point of view, was for what I've always referred to as drivable sub-urban places. That's what the market wanted. They wanted to separate all different uses, and the only way to get around was by car. And uh, that's what the market wants. And my first 10 years in real estate, and particularly real estate consulting, was master plan communities and resort communities and, and strip malls and regional malls. And that's what we told builders what to do. Yeah, well, that sounds horrible. <laughs> I know. I, I wasn't crazy about it, but I was saying, you know, the fact that I liked cities, that was my, that was my opinion. But what does the market want? And that's what the market wanted. So a structural change began to bubble up in the late 90s and really took off in the 21st century. And it was a structural change 
similar to the post-war structural change. Post-war, we went to drivable suburban from walkable urban prior to the depression. And you know, in the 21st century, the market is demanding walkable urban. So the pendulum swung one way and then swung back. And so now we're struggling to deliver to the market what it wants, which is higher density, not high density necessarily, higher density walkable urban places, whether it's in our redeveloping center cities or the most important trend of the 2020s is the urbanizing suburb. So I want to hear more about your work on resorts, frankly, because I find this so fascinating that it's in some ways like resorts are the quote unquote ideal. It's it's what we dream up, what we think we want when we get to choose absolute pure vacation time. And you're, you know, you're trying to find a market for that, obviously. You know, that seems it's so interesting to me. You mentioned earlier that people actually wanted on their vacation time to be in a suburban atmosphere. That just like breaks my brain. That was all relatively new for the market in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. So it was the new flavor of the month, and people didn't recognize the unintended consequence at that point. You know, today, when you look at the tourist market, because obviously resorts are a subset of the tourist market, that about a third of the demand is for wilderness, true rural, you know, wilderness safaris. About a sixth is for resorts, but about half is for walkable urban experience. So when you go to Paris, you certainly go to the center city. You don't go to their monster big box stores and regional malls on the front, on the <laughs> sixth beltway outside of Paris. They do have six beltways. So it is imperative that we give the market what it wants. And that was then, this is now. Today, the market is heavily demanding more than half of the demand for residential living, and for commercial space, as well as for resorts, more than half is for walkable urban places, which only take place in less than 10% of our metropolitan land. So we're not talking about changing the entire built environment that we built up over the last you know, 50, 100 years. We're only talking about changing 10% of that and less for the tourist destinations, for uh, everyday housing, and for how we earn our living in our commercial districts. It's interesting because at the same time as people are demanding more wanting to live in cities just to live in, at the same time as that trend is increasing, you're also seeing the trend increasing for that demand in their vacations as well, because it's just sort of more desirable overall. And because of this chronic shortage of walkable urban spaces, you know, a lot of our politics, you know, especially the Airbnb controversies, it becomes this controversy about seeing the vacation as at war with the people who actually live there. And how do we, you know, I mean, this is classic shortage mentality is like those two things, we could just have abundance. We could have a lot of spaces where you could have people both vacationing and living and selling things to tourists. And instead we have this kind of competition for a limited resource that doesn't have to be limited. No, it doesn't have to be a limited. Certainly there, there needs to be some management of places like Venice. Uh, I think one of the best models is uh, Bermuda who they limit the number of beds that can be rented, including cruise ships. Mm -hmm. And the reason for doing that in Bermuda is because they don't want to put a burden on the residents. They want the residents of the islands to embrace the visitors, not to feel like it's a pain in the neck to have them here. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think that's, uh, I mean, I'm in San Francisco, so there's a big debate about, you know, I mean, Airbnb, out, of course. Airbnb and outsiders of all kinds. And, um, you know, it definitely the shortage mentality is something that's really hard. You know, once you're in a shortage, anybody competing for that limited resource becomes very easy to demonize. Exactly. And, and especially if they don't live there and they're, and they're not voting there, the typical outsider, let's blame the outsider, let's go to war on the outsider. That's human history in a nutshell. Let's do a hard pivot. I want to hear more about how you worked on Disney and getting more into their new imaginings of how, what would a recreational space be like. So it really actually starts with Seaside. And my, my development partner is Robert Davis, who developed Seaside, the first new urbanist community. And Robert got the start by taking a famous tour of the South's small towns. And he, along with Andreas Duani, Liz Plater-Zyberg, and Robert's wife, Daryl, they took a driving tour of Southern towns and began to measure the distance between the sidewalk and the porch and understanding that there was a porch and understanding there were these white picket fences and the size of the streets and how to build a commercial district that was with, within walking distance of the residential and how large the size of the lots should be. And they basically learned from history and applied it to Seaside. And Robert, he had 80 acres and he was building one eighth of an acre lots. His first lot, he's in, in 1985 or so, he sold for $10,000. He has no more lots left, but his, lot, his last lot sold for $2 million. So obviously there was great demand for this walkable urban place. And he had, a he had a commercial core that became the heart of the community, all within walking distance of the various houses. So I was approached by Michael Eisner, who was then the CEO of Disney, to figure out what Walt Disney's dream of the park called Epcot could be. Because Epcot got built out as sort of a second, as, as kind of a permanent World's Fair and it, that's not what Disney wanted. You probably don't know, but Epcot stands for Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow. So we were there with Eisner and the senior management of Disney and you know, five, six of us, various urbanists to, to get together. And so he charged us to say, figure out what Epcot is. So we came back about a, two months later. Uh, and of course, the CEO was not there, just the senior, the senior execs. And we brought back basically Seaside. All the folks around the table said, well, where has this been done before? And I said, well, it's been done once at Seaside, but it's never been done before. And they kept on bitching and moaning that, oh, my Lord, you know, we need comparables. And I said, what don't you, you know, really understand about experimental or prototype or community of tomorrow? It doesn't have comparables by definition. So they built the town of celebration near uh, Disney World in Orlando highly successful community, mixed income with a great little downtown. And it was a great experiment, continues to be. So there was Disney getting involved with uh, what they've always been doing is building walkable urban places. I mean, that's sort of the funny part about, I mean, I, you know, I went to Disneyland as a kid and you drive and arrive at this ocean of parking <laughs> surrounding a walkable experience where you and get pay $125 today to get in. Oh, is that it? 
I feel person. Like, it's crazy. Oh, well, I think I like that's cheap compared. I just remember paying for everything all the time and my mother groaning <laughs> about it and me not having a very firm concept of money also at the time, sort of. of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it, you arrive and there's trains and you walk around everywhere and it's such a different experience. I mean, this is the same with fairs. I, I grew up going to Maine and going to the country fairs there. And, you know, it is an ocean of parking. And then you arrive in the wonderful, vibrant, dense space where you can walk around and have this. I mean, in, in some ways, the mall is even recreating oh, of course. this experience. Yeah. When, when the mall was invented back in the 50s by a Austrian uh, architect, uh, he wanted to recreate a European village. And by the end of his life, oh, he was... He was so disgusted with what he created. It's a drivable suburban place that's obviously artificial. And it's meant to, it's somewhat akin to a casino where you don't want to let people know what the weather is outside. You just want them to focus on spending money. So it, it's an ultimate drivable suburban place. It, it's the really the epitome of a drivable suburban place. And again, the market wanted it. When I first went to my first regional mall outside of Philadelphia, where I was growing up, I thought I had died and gone to heaven. I thought it was fabulous. And the market felt the same way. It's the market. I mean, you know, our brains are so malleable. I just sort of feel like at the same time, and we say the market all the time, but people had been, a lot of money had been spent convincing Americans that the automobile was great. A lot of money continues to be spent on convincing people that the automobile is great. And a lot of investment in auto-centric infrastructure so that it becomes a cheaper way to deliver a product to people. It's a cheaper variable cost way to, to deliver transportation, but you don't allocate the fixed cost, which is now the number two cost in a household budget is transportation. And 92% of that is cars. So we've gotten ourselves backed into a corner, literally. Uh, where we have to pay a huge amount of our annual income to just participate in society. Because if you don't have a car, you don't participate in 95% of the landmass of this country. Yeah. I mean, and then on top of that, you have all these stats about like, you know, the, the longer your commute is, the more likely your child is to do poorly in school. All of the stats are so interesting now about the work from home people that the longer your commute is, the more likely you are to say work from home is great. And yet we still have this cultural idea that cars are great, but you can measure in other ways how people have a sense of how they're, they don't think of their car as making them miserable. They think of traffic as making them miserable, which is like the, the running joke in Yimby world is always like, you're not in traffic, you are traffic. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but it all comes back to, there is no reason to battle people that like a drivable suburban lifestyle. That's just fine for, for different phases of life, fine for different people. The issue is where is the supply demand balance? And right now the pent up demand is for walkable urban places. And that's why the price premiums for walkable urban places are so sky high. I think maybe the market is wrong is a thing I can quote me as saying the market is wrong. But I also think like I watched people, you know, like my father who shouldn't have been driving and could not because of the structure of his surroundings 
could not give up his car, ended up totaling two cars, almost mm-hmm. killing people. Mm-hmm. That's a common story. My mother did the same thing. And we had to finally take her keys uh, away when she was 90. And she died at 93. And um, she caused a major accident. And so her son said, Mom, <laughs> you're not going to do this anymore. So she just started taking buses and walking. And you know, luckily had an environment where she could do that. I mean, that's the other thing. So many. Well, yes and no. Ah, I mean, she, yeah. she, she really, she was picked up by the police a lot as a old lady walking on a very busy street that didn't have sidewalks and the police would take her home. So no, she did not have the perfect environment for it, but we have choices. When you look at what the national association of realtors surveys show is that 60, 65% of us want a walkable urban environment. The actual supply of walkable urban environments in our metropolitan areas is somewhere in Boston, it's probably 25% of the housing stock is in a walkable urban place. In Atlanta, it's about 10%, maybe 8%. So there's a huge gap between the people that want this versus the supply. And it takes time to give the market what it wants. But there still be people that want to be away from everybody else and they want to be in their little two-acre piece of paradise. And that's fine. It's a free country. I mean, but I also think, you know, we have to densify existing suburbs. So no you, you, I mean, I do think most of the suburbs, when we talk about legalizing duplexes, when we talk about legalizing fourplexes, when we talk about missing middle, they don't have any faith or maybe, and it's also selection bias of who comes out to meetings and all that kind of stuff. But I do also think that there's this problem where they're scared that things are going to get worse. And they don't have a lot of hope that we can actually build a walkable community around them. And they don't see that like density means they're going to get a coffee shop and they might be able to walk to a corner store. Like that dream seems so, they can be so angry and fearful that all change is negative and they don't have the like, maybe we can have a community that is like genuinely better and that grows and thrives. That just doesn't seem to be something that a lot of suburban people are often imagining. So what I have found is that it takes these, uh, you know, dyed in the wool, NIMBY, drivable suburban households to experience in their own metropolitan area, a walkable urban alternative. And so my first experience of this, of seeing YIMBYism at work, was here in Metro DC, just north of the city in Montgomery County. Montgomery County has the red line, the heavy rail uh, metro system that goes right out through the heart of Montgomery County. And around each of the stations are a couple really great walkable urban places. But a lot of those metro stations are just surrounded by surface parking lots and strip malls. So the best example in Montgomery County is a town called Bethesda, which is a great walkable urban place. And it's where the date nights of most of the drivable suburban people <laughs> and families go to. They love to go to for a movie, the restaurants, the theater, to downtown Bethesda. It's really sweet. And um, about three metro stations up from uh, Bethesda. The neighborhood groups around there got together, educated themselves, and worked with the developers to come up with a plan to triple the density. And much of the infrastructure was going to be paid for by the developers. And I went to the supervisor in charge of Montgomery County, the CEO of of Montgomery County, for the final presentation at, at his boardroom. The developers were there. 
they were very polite and said nice things because they didn't want to piss off people. I was there to say a few words. And then it turned to the three neighborhood groups and the Sierra Club. They started pounding the table saying, triple the density, because I'd like my daughter, my 10-year-old daughter, to be able to walk to get an ice cream cone and not have to deal with the eight-lane traffic sewer that is Rockville Pike. And you know, we want a place like downtown Bethesda. Why can't we have it here? And it passed. And it's happening now that, that you know, Rockville Pike is being traffic calmed and all sorts of high-density mixed-use stuff is, has been built. So they're getting what they want. So it can happen. And, it, and again, it goes back to the fact that it's not a huge chunk of the real estate. It's less than 10% of the suburbs need to be upzoned for high density. No, 100%. Suburbs. See, this is, okay, so I love that we got here because I do think this is where I become a like radical and like make the wonderful work of the new urbanists like uncomfortable is because I think what really does separate the, the next generation of people who are like getting really loud about this is our level of frustration and our level of not being willing to wait that I think that there has been so much work and that's beautiful work, but that has been a lot about holding the hands of the people who have a lot and want to resource hoard. Yep. And I do think this is what makes like, you know, the Yimbies different, but allies, but also I understand why we make some of the traditional urbanists a little bit uncomfortable is like, I think that this movement also needs the anger that is necessary sometimes for politics to say, we can't wait. We can't hold everybody's hand. We want people to get to this place where they can see that this thing will be better, but also we have to stop increasing segregation. We have to stop. And, and like, to the point that like, if we do not create more walkable spaces, we are all going to die of climate change. Like that right. is- just- <laughs> I agree. I absolutely <laughs> agree. The issue is, is that if you don't have to change 100% of the, of the zoning and you still get to a more resilient, sustainable, socially equitable outcome, why take on the battle when, you know, that if you can change 10% of the, of the zoning, and which includes single family zoning becoming higher density, but it would be higher density in what, what I refer to as the halo of these great walkable urban places. So in Bethesda, just to stay with, uh, with Bethesda, Maryland, that they've got this great high density downtown with 20, 30, 40 story office buildings now going up and hotels and you know, high density residential. But you walk outside of it, very walkable. You have this halo of single family homes and those homes can be upzoned as well to take obsolete single family homes that were built in the 20s, 30s, and 40s and upzone them to townhouses or to multifamily or to put a granny flat in the backyard. Those halo locations are prime to go higher density. And my numbers show that we're going to meet the demand for walkable urban development in that 10%, which includes the high density downtown Bethesda's, as well as the halo that'll be about you know, a mile outside. And when you do a pi r squared of a mile, you've got a lot of land that you can put a lot of density. I'm a pragmatist, so I'm not opposed to that. But I also think that we have been 
I mean, I look at sort of the the last 20 years where this idea, like, you know, there are no new ideas in land use, right? They're like, I say that jokingly, obviously you have had some new ideas in land use that were genuinely new at the time. All of it's back to the future. It's all, it's all back to the future that those back to the future one and two are the most important popular movies in, (laughs) in urbanism. You see the entire world there. All three of the past cycles of how we've built the built environment are in those two movies. So you're right that there are very few new ideas. Um, it's just a matter of learning from the 1920s. Right. <laughs> or, or the 1820s. Or, or the 1820s, exactly. 1820s, yeah. So my experience, you know, as limited as it is, it seems like the path of we were going to have deep conversations with small communities that would actively choose to densify and that would do it on their own terms. That path does not seem politically viable to me. I think that it you have these like case studies where it works, but we don't have time anymore for case studies that we have to do things at scale in this way that demands not only because we will have a better outcome, but I think that the social justice and undoing the deliberate work of segregation is both powerful in a pragmatic sense in that it gets people to care deeply about this issue and want to change it everywhere. And it gets us the right level of ambitious that I think some of the, oh, we only have to do 10% means that you end up with a conversation that is debating who's going to do that 10% rather than a broader conversation about how do we change our communities everywhere. And I don't know, I guess, you know, we'll, we'll run the clock forward in 10 years and sort of say, which piece, I mean, I can't wait to read the, you know, political science journals on like, which strategy was right? Or did we need both strategies in order to actually uplift and have this whole, I mean, knock on wood, it'll be in 15 years and all the laws will be different and we'll both be congratulating each other. Well, and and I think that as always, California is leading, leading the way because there are, as you know, incredible institutional obstacles to this. As a developer, I was involved with a 120-acre golf course conversion to a mixed-use walkable urban community in the suburban Philadelphia. It took 12 years. Oh my God. And a trip to the states and a trip to the state Supreme Court to have the <laughs> largest, largest upzoning decision in the history of the country. It wow. took us millions of dollars. And finally we got it. And we are now 60% built out after 10 years. And it's now the downtown. It is the preferred date night. It is where everything <laughs> is happening in this place. But they fought it ferociously. You know, and obviously the people that were the, uh, on the barricades trying to fight us are now saying, oh, we, we love this place. And we were all there for it right from the get-go. <laughs> Bullshit. So, no, there are times. Uh, my, my last sentence in uh, one of my books, The Option of Urbanism, is that the only question is whether the market will just take its course over many decades or whether walkable urbanism will be part of a new American domestic policy to speed up the process. This is what you basically just said. Yes. All right. <laughs> and, and real estate developers are giving the market what it wants, just not fast enough. And we've got these brain dead zoning laws, like what I had to go through outside of uh, Philadelphia. And that's just, that's just not right. And so what California is doing with the state mandating 
that if we're going to invest in transit, you must within a, uh, within a half mile of a transit station upzone, or otherwise we're not going to do it. There must be mandates. And just like we have mandates for vaccines, I mean, we're all bloody tired of these anti-vaxxers. I mean, we know that, you know, we mandate that you cannot play with your kids in a freeway. We mandate that you must send your kids to school. That's a mandate. Well, you, we are now finally mandating you must get a vaccine or you cannot participate in society. There's a role for mandates. And what California is doing is what we're going to be doing, I hope, throughout the country to mandate high density walkable urbanism and not let six crazies at the local level who just love to go to 11 p.m. meetings and yell and scream when most <laughs> rational people would never do that and basically hijack a democracy because the market wants it. People are not being given what they want and we need to take our democracy back. Well, this has been a really great discussion. I think let's leave it there. Um, I can't wait to hear you at the Up for Growth conference. I hope that you are just as radical there as you were here today with us. <laughs> it was so nice to meet you. Great, Laura. Look forward to, to the virtual conference. I only am sorry that we can't have an actual face-to-face. Hey, everyone. Ed here, one of the Intel producers. If you're not already a member, go to yimbyaction.org and become a member today. Yimby Action is advocating for the policy solutions we need, whether that's the emergency funding for housing for those who need it most or a pro-housing legislative package that will steer us towards an equitable recovery. We're producing great events, important discussions, and helping local advocates push policies of inclusion and housing for all. And if you believe this work is important and valuable, I want to really urge you to become a supporting member. September is membership month, so if you join today, you'll get a free legalized housing t-shirt. You could do that, as I said, by going to yimbyaction.org join. Thanks so much.